Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, there are a number of things uh, intersecting today. It's All Saints Day. And it's also the time each year where we begin to turn toward our rule of life because on Christ our King Sunday, November 20th, each year is when we as a community reaffirm our rule of life. And there also is an election coming up, which is on many of our minds. And um, this week, as I was thinking through the gospel text, it seemed like I saw a theme where these things were colliding um, that, that may... That may not be the case, (laughs) but um, I think so. Jesus, we've heard your word read to us. Now we pray that you'd open our eyes so we could see. We pray that you'd open our ears so we could hear. Pray that you'd open our mind and our heart so we could understand. So you turn to, we would turn to you and live. Amen. Well, the Sadducees in the gospel reading this morning approached Jesus with a real brain twister. The Sadducees uh, were some of the elites of Jewish life. They held a fair bit of political power. And they were a little bit of religious outsiders. They didn't believe in the idea of the resurrection. Now, the general Jewish idea of resurrection was not some vague belief that somehow in some weird, distant future that in some ethereal way their immortal souls would float around the universe. The Sadducees probably would have been okay with some idea like that. The Jewish idea of resurrection in general was that a day would come when the Messiah through God would recreate the world and that the world in which they lived would somehow be right again. So all the oppression that they faced, all of their dark history, all of the things that pressed upon them that someday it would be made right and their lives would finally have its rich meaning in God. Now there's been a lot of speculation as to why exactly the Sadducees rejected this. It may have been because they preferred the earliest books of the Hebrew Bible, and it was harder to arrive at an idea of resurrection from the earliest books of the Hebrew Bible. You get that more as you move into the prophets. And the Sadducees seemed to like the earlier books better. Another and probably more viable to me reason for why the Sadducees didn't like this idea of resurrection, again, is because they held political power. And there seemed to be a lot of fear that if the common Jew actually believed that God was going to recreate a new kind of world where justice reigned, that that might actually upset the power structures as they stood. So hold on to that for a minute. So the Sadducees want to show Jesus how ridiculous his idea of resurrection is. So they come up with this brain twister that was worthy of Will Shorts. You know, the the New York Times NPR puzzle master. I mean, it's, it's that kind of deal. So they appeal back to Moses and they say, now Jesus, you remember that Moses instructed us 
that if a, a brother dies, that the brother who is still living, if this brother has not had a child, that this living brother should marry the wife so that the family lineage can continue. Jesus obviously would have nodded to that. And then they continue and they said, well, what if that happened and the second brother dies and there's no kid and the third brother does the same and dies and there's no kid and the fourth one does the same and dies and no kid. And at some point we pause and say, what is going on with this woman? She's like a death trap. Stop marrying her. And the fifth one dies and no child, and you get, you get the idea. And we go to seven. And they sit back somewhat smugly and say, so Jesus, who then in this new world is going to be married to this woman? And Jesus answers, you don't really understand at all what you're talking about. In the new world, Everything is renewed. Everything is remade. Everything is better, even marriage. It's not, it doesn't happen there the way it happens here. Now, I can't really explain all this to you right now because it would blow your brains, but let me just tell you that you don't understand the way it is in the new world. Things really are changed and renewed. And then he goes on. And he refers back to Moses. It's kind of like he wants to one-up them. If they want to refer to Moses, he'll refer to Moses. And he says, you remember that great story, Moses at the burning bush? And if you're a Jew, the story of Moses at the burning bush is a powerful, potent story. He says, do you remember the way Moses spoke at the burning bush? He spoke of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it wasn't just some appeal to an ancient history that this was the same God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had worshipped centuries before. It was Moses speaking in a way that they were still alive in this moment as the bush burned, that this same God who was burning in the bush was the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were living and present. And then Jesus makes his point. Because God is not God of the dead, but the living because in God, all are alive. In God, all, right now, present tense, are alive. Once you are alive in God, then you never truly die. And in this interim age, while we wait for the final renewal, the final resurrection, the moment where our life and our bodies and our neighborhoods and our land and our futures and our politics are all renewed, we do know a separation of death. And Paul is right when he says, in this world, it is an enemy. But there is another competing witness in scripture that even though there is death and even though it absolutely is an enemy and even though we are right to grieve separation the competing witness is that in God no one is lost we are alive in God and perhaps this seems fanciful or nonsensical to us because we have difficulty believing that when we're actually 
breathing that we're alive in God. I mean, do we honestly, are we able to hold onto this truth that at this very moment, in the deepest and truest sense, I am alive in God? Right now, as we're walking among one another, as we're doing our work, as we are hoping for good things for our family, that our life is in God. And since God truly is our life, whether we recognize it or not, and since in God's life we never truly die, and since we have received God's life and are joined together in this life in God, we are never ultimately separated. Whenever we pray the Apostles' Creed, there's this phrase in there that we pray, so it's every other week, and it's that we believe in the communion of saints. This is the old and beautiful way of talking about what Paul refers to when he says that we are joined, as we heard read this morning in the epistle reading, we are joined into one body. And this one body is not just those of us in this room. It's not even just those of us who claim the name of Christ and the kingdom of God in Charlottesville or around the globe. It is this, this body that stretches across time and history because Jesus never dies. And if our life is found in God, if our life is bound together in Jesus Christ, then there is a, a deep kind of connection, a fusion that never ends. Now, this is why, um, in the best understanding, there are Christians who do what they call praying with the saints. Now, in the best understanding, it's not praying to the saints in the sense that we think that a saint is like Jesus and a, a saint has some kind of superpower that can grant us our wishes. It is rather based in this very biblical belief that there are Christians that we are joined to even though we don't see them because we are together in Christ. And in Christ, we are alive and so are they. This means that we are part of the community of God's people. All of us are. We're part of the saints. We are part of the communion of saints. It means that those in your family that you love and dearly love you who've died, they are not lost. It means that in Jesus, they are alive and they're alive to you and they're alive to me. So it seems to me instructive that we are beginning to prepare for our community's annual affirmation of our rule of life, which we'll do again in two weeks on Christ our King Sunday. This rule of life is the way that we understand our calling to live together in obedience to Jesus. And these two moments, All Saints Day and us beginning to prepare for our rule of life, when they occur in harmony, they remind us that our rule of life is not merely our own community's attempts, isolated and individually, to try to, in some newfangled way, be Christians. But rather, what we're trying to do is find our own embodied way of being faithful to the communion of saints, to be faithful to the community of God that has been handed to us and gifted to us, 
that we have been joined into, that we are joined to even now. And this is why our community's rule is built on the foundation of the true story of God, the kind of story that's reflected in the prayer of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. This is a prayer that we pray alongside God's people around the world. It's prayers that have been prayed for hundreds of years. We didn't create the story, it was given to us. It was given to us by God's spirit and through the living witness of God's people. Ones that we are with now physically and ones that we aren't with now. Our rule begins with baptism, enacting in us how God has buried us into death and raised us to new life and telling us the true story of ourselves, that we are now united to God, that we're alive in new kinds of ways. We didn't create baptism. It was given to us. And chances are you didn't baptize yourself. You were baptized. It is something we surrender to, something we submit to, something that grafts us in and gathers us up. We are invited into an ancient, living, always expanding, vibrant community of God's people, the baptized ones, the saints. And when we were baptized at All Souls, you're not only welcomed by this small community of people, you are welcomed by God's global church. So with our rule of life, we recognize how across history and geography, Christians have constantly sought to be faithful to the gospel in very practical, real to the ground, right in front of us, gritty ways. I love how in some senses, we're talking about an idea that might seem one of the most abstract we could possibly talk about, which is this global communion of saints that we are joined to. And at the same time, we're talking about the most practical, immediate, on the earth expression of our discipleship as followers of Jesus, which is our shared rule of life. So if you look across Christian history, there have consistently been three areas of practical bodied living that, that Christians have said, if we're going to say we follow Jesus and are, and are part of the new kingdom of God, there are really tangible and practical ways that we're going to have to continue to learn how to surrender our life to the authority of God. The monastics did this by having vows, vows of Christian discipleship. Their vows were vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. But in many ways, it's a reflection of areas that Christians across history have always understood that our lives and the lives that we would be sort of left to ourselves, the choices we would make, may often be in tension. In modern language, we think of this as money and sexuality and power. And money means, well, money. It means the stuff we own, the resources we have, and there will always be ways of conflict in how we use our money and how 
the world around us, the world that we're part of, the world that's in us, how we're trying to remake and renew these things in obedience to Jesus. In sexuality, it's our personhood, it's our bodies, it's the way we honor one another's bodies. And there will always be ways that as Christians, we try to think about what does it mean to follow Jesus and be faithful to the kingdom of God with our personhood, with ourself, with our bodies. And the third one is power. It's our energy, our influence. It's the resources we have to cooperate with God's kingdom, with God's new world. And a while back when we were thinking about, actually last year, when we were thinking about how we wanted to prepare for our rule of life this year, we thought we want to emphasize power this year. It hadn't dawned on us that we would be having this sermon on the Sunday before an election. Perhaps that was foolish. Perhaps that's the Holy Spirit. So two weeks ago, we mentioned that as Christians, our posture in all of our relationships and in all of our actions, even political ones, is that we have to refuse contempt. That's an instructive discipline, that we will discipline ourselves and be faithful to the way of Jesus, and we will not have contempt for another image bearer of God. But then we, I was thinking about this week, I wanted to think more positively. And here's where all of this, at least in my half-working brain, comes together. Is when we think about the communion of saints, and we think about what it means to have, be part of a heritage that's been handed to us and given to us, that our job as Christians, even before we make our political decisions in the immediate moment, is to seek to be faithful to the witness of the gospel and the kingdom of God that's been handed to us. How have God's people across time and history sought to be faithful to God in difficult moments? I, there's probably a million places we could go and we could spend the next five weeks hashing through this, but I have three minutes. And my mind and heart has gone to two moments in scripture, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament where in very political moments, the people of God were given instructions on how they are to operate there. The first one is in Jeremiah 27, 29.7, a, a, a passage that we've referred to a lot. It's when God's people are under the heavy heel of Babylon. They were under a domineering political power. And the instructions from God to the people of Israel was that they were to seek the peace or the shalom of the city. They were to seek the well-being of Babylon. They were to work for the flourishing for Babylon. Now, most of the people in Babylon were not faithful to Israel's God. Most of the people in Babylon would have had their world view. But their job for the very ones who had taken them captive was not tribalism. It wasn't a grasping for, for power for their own sake. It wasn't trying to win an argument. It was using their power and even relinquishing their power when need be for the good of others. They were to seek the well-being 
and the flourishing of the city. Now, in some ways, it's actually unfortunate, I think, that we're talking about this before a big election, because this is, these kind of moments is probably where our mind goes about the political use of power. But the reality is probably that the real use of this kind of power happens a year from now in your neighborhood and in local work uh, and advocacy and, and, and coming alongside in friendships and advocacy for those who are in our neighborhoods and who are hurting. And yet, it's true, as Christians, when we go into a voting booth, one of the questions we have to be asking ourselves is, God, in your wisdom, with your Holy Spirit, what does it mean for this place I call home and that I love and that I'm deeply concerned about, what does it mean for it to flourish? What does it mean for the other to flourish, not just me? What does it mean for us together to be able to live together? Now, obviously, uh, that doesn't answer lots of questions. And it's not my job to answer it for you. Thanks be to God. <laughs> but, it, but it is, I think, I think part of my job to remind you that as Christians, as followers of the way of Jesus, our hope and prayer is for the flourishing of everyone. The second text is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. And interesting that this, again, is in a political context. It's uh, another moment where Peter is talking about how we engage the Roman government. And he says, we are to honor all people. We are to honor all people. However your political convictions, however they move us to act, to vote, to resist, to speak out, there must be honor. There must be honor for the one that you just can't understand. <laughs> there must be honor for the one that you think, I, I, I just, I'm not even sure I can have this conversation with you right now because I can't see straight. It's, it's the flip side of not being contemptuous. It's one thing to say, I am not going to have contempt for you. It's another thing to say, and I will honor you. Now, this is difficult to do in our society because we have forgotten, I think, how to disagree well with one another. Our emotions fire up. Our um, anger and our energy goes to some really unhelpful places. But as Christians, we have to learn how to say, you know, um, I don't see that the way you see it. I would like to hear why you believe that. I'm going to see if there's something in me that can connect with where you are. And that would be wonderful if there is. And if there isn't, <laughs> if we just cannot connect on this right now, I will not be contemptuous to you, and I will honor you. Now, I may cancel out your vote with mine, but I will honor you because we are joined to something, something that supersedes any kind of anger and contempt. In the way of Jesus, we are to be working for the good of the other. 
The Christian vision is that when the saints go marching in, it's not a victory for a religious tribe, but it's good news for all the people. That there's flourishing, that there's wholeness, that there's righteousness, that there's joy. Remember how we mentioned the Sadducees' fear that the idea of God's new world might upset their political power? Maybe they were right to be concerned. Whenever we surrender our lives to God and to the living story of God's people across time and history and allow ourselves to be untethered from an idolatrous view of our own moment, the world grows larger, deeper, truer, more hopeful because we sing with the old hymn, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. And these are my father's creation. <laughs> this is my father's people. Even ones that I just can't see it with. It's true. This is God's good world. God's good people. This is the life that we've been given. It's a life of all who've gone before us. It's a life that we're seeking to be faithful to now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.